Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. For the next four weeks, we're going to be in a series called Culture Shift. We titled it that because, frankly, as you look around you, you see there is a lot of shifts going on in the culture, especially on some particular issues that we find to be very challenging life issues today. And so we wanted to take some of those head on, and in many ways today we are diving into the deep end with both feet. And when you do something like that, you want to have somebody who is well-informed. You want to have somebody who's going to approach an issue in a way that's not only going to equip us, but also understand that there is a lot of different backgrounds and history and stuff that we bring to these issues as we sort them. Um, We've had Alan here before, but to me what has always uh, impressed me about Alan, what I've always appreciated about him in the years, is not only his informative way in which he can dialogue. I mean, he was somebody who many years ago jettisoned the idea of faith in God because of all the challenges he felt were there. And then there were those that came alongside him and answered his questions and reached out to him in ways that brought him into faith. And this is not the kind of guy that just buys things hook, line, and sinker. He reasons it out. And so when he finally came to that place, he then turned around and began to minister to people answering the most difficult questions out there. He's a member of Stand to Reasons Ministries, and he travels around nationally speaking. He's an, he's an author, well-known author, and he deals with these subjects. He's one of the strongest thinkers I know. And so to start this off, there's really no better way to do that. And would you please welcome with me from Stand to Reason Ministries, Alan Schleeman. Well, good morning. I may have mentioned uh, last year or so when I was here that uh, uh, my parents were born in, in Baghdad, Iraq, which, uh, which, by the way, is not a great vacation destination. <laughs> in case you're thinking about going, hold off for maybe 800 years, okay, when things uh, settle down. But uh, my, my parents did not raise my brother and I as Muslims. They, they raised us rather as Christians. And the reason is because my people, my, my ethnic background is Assyrian. Now, this is not the same thing as Syrian, which are people from Syria. Uh, my people are from Assyria, which is a country that was destroyed back in 700 B.C. Uh, so out of curiosity, raise your hand if you've ever heard of the Assyrian people. Yeah, it looks like a lot of you have. I mean, chances are, if you've read any parts of the Old Testament, you'll recall the Assyrians are talked a lot about in the Old Testament, which sounds pretty cool. It's like, yeah, my people are in the Bible, right? Except we were the sworn enemies of Israel, so consequently that makes us the sworn enemies of God. So that was kind of a bummer growing up and finding that you know, news out, right? But, you know, we're also known to be uh, just people of history. Like if you studied world history, you'll find out that we're actually, uh, you know, fairly well known. But again, we're known not for something great, but for something horrible, which is our brutality. Like we were known to invent the battering ram, you know, and we were extremely brutal people. Like when we attacked people, we would not just try to destroy them. We would chop off their heads and throw them against walls. We would gouge out people's eyeballs. We 
would skin people alive. In fact, we were even known to take our enemies' dead bodies, put them on spears, light them on fire, and use their burning bodies as light for our parties at night. But we're a lot nicer now. I mean, I haven't hurt anybody today. So uh, be of good cheer. If you ask me a tough question afterwards, I won't kill you. You know, so we repented at the preaching of Jonah, in fact. So we're, we're good. All right. Enough about my problems, though. Let's, uh, let's talk about what we're here to discuss. And as you probably know, there's a lot of Christians who talk about social justice. And this term social justice, whenever it's brought up, usually people think of things like homelessness or poverty or human trafficking or other things like that, which don't get me wrong, these are important issues that we as Christians should absolutely care about and do whatever we can to try to reach those needs. But curiously absent from the social justice issue list is the topic of abortion. But if what we believe about abortion is true, that abortion kills an innocent human being, then abortion should rise to the top of the social justice issue list. Right? Why? Because abortion is still legal in all 50 states, throughout all nine months of pregnancy, and for virtually any reason. The fact is that 48% of pregnancies today are unplanned, and half of those end in abortion. Now, according to Planned Parenthood's own statistics, and this is the largest abortion provider in America, so if they're, if they're biased in any direction, they're, they're more likely to, to downplay the numbers. But according to their own data, 2,899 unborn children are killed each day in America alone. That's about how many people died on September 11th during the terrorist attack. But yet that number is the amount of kids that are killed every single day. And so um, with that, this is why I think that the topic of abortion should be on the social justice issue list. Somewhere on there at least. But the reality is it's, it's like a topic that's not trendy anymore. You know, people kind of don't care about it. You mention abortion and people's eyes glaze over and they're like, oh, really? Are we going to talk about that? You know, isn't that like old stuff? Like, well, just uh, nobody likes abortion. It's an ugly topic and I get it. So, so that apathy alone is upsetting to me for somebody who cares about this topic. But here's what really, how should we say, makes my blood boil. According to the same data that we have on the stats on abortion, we find out that 27% of people who are having abortion identify themselves as Catholic. 33% identify themselves as Protestant. That means Christians are killing their own children. The most dangerous place for a baby to be in America today is resting in her own mother's womb. And that's why this morning I want to talk to you about how we can make that place safer for unborn children by making abortion unthinkable. We got to do something to stop the killing. Now, here's the exciting part. There aren't too many situations where we, like everyday people, have an opportunity to be involved in saving lives. Right? Unless you're involved in the medical field or law enforcement or the military, chances are you can't walk away from a day and be like, oh, I just saved someone's life. But when it comes to the issue of abortion and, the, and just the pro-life movement in general, this is an opportunity where we do have the opportunity to save lives. And guess what? It's at no risk to your own life to do so. And so there's a lot of practical things that we can do. 
depending on your skills, depending on your resources, right? You could volunteer your time to a pro-life organization like a pregnancy resource center. You could donate your money to pro-life individuals or organizations. You can support women who are facing crisis pregnancies, who might be abortion-minded, right? With food, with money, with, with lodging, with a place to stay. Who knows? There's a lot you can do. But not everyone can do all those things. And so this morning what I want to do is give you something that every one of you can do. And that is to change minds on abortion. Now, perhaps some of you might be a little skeptical and think, well, Alan, come on. The reality is you can't change minds on abortion because no one ever changes their mind on abortion. People who've already thought about this subject have decided and are too entrenched on one side or the other. They're too emotionally invested. No one ever changes their mind. This is absolutely not true. I have been involved in doing this work for over a decade and a half, and I have seen people for years changing their minds. I believe the key is, though, we have to use the right tactics. We have to have the right tools to be able to do this. And that's what I'm going to provide for you this morning. I want to teach you three tasks to make abortion unthinkable. And if you pull out your bulletins, there's some actually an outline there of the three tasks. I'm going to follow very closely to that outline. So we'll begin by first looking at task number one. And this first task will be to show that there's only one question to resolve in the entire, in the entire abortion debate. There's only one question to resolve in the entire abortion debate. Because the reality is that people very rarely talk about abortion. Even if you get in a conversation about abortion, what you'll find is the conversation will naturally tangent onto a whole host of other subtopics or related subjects. So you'll start talking about abortion, but immediately the conversation will jump to things like choice and privacy, or rape and incest, or unwantedness, or financial hardship, or, you know, back alley abortions, and so on and so forth. And if you're like any normal human being, you'll think to yourself, how can I possibly be knowledgeable about all of these subtopics in order for me to be effective on the subject of being pro-life? Well, the reality is that you don't have to be knowledgeable or an expert on all these other subtopics. I'm not. But yet I believe we can still be effective in changing minds. And the reason is this. These are tangents that distract from the key question that I want you to focus on in any conversation about abortion. And here's the key question that I want you to focus on. That is, what is the unborn? What is the unborn? Although abortion might be psychologically or emotionally complex, morally speaking, it's actually rather simple. This is the key question that I want you to bring the conversation back to in any situation where we're having a dialogue about this. Let me give you an illustration as to how I know this is the key question. Imagine one evening you're at home and you're doing the dishes. And I want you also to imagine that you have a six-year-old son, okay? <laughs> now, I've had a six-year-old son, so I know this actually happens, right? But imagine you're doing the dishes one evening, and your six-year-old son comes up behind you. And while your back is turned to him, you hear him say, Mommy or Daddy, can I kill this? Now, before you can answer his question, what question are you going to ask him? Yeah, what, what is it, right? So you put your dishes down, you turn around, and you notice your son is holding a daddy long leg spider in his hand. Okay, what's your answer going to be? Yes. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You take one leg, son. I'll take another leg. Let's just pull that sucker in two. Okay. Now, what if, now, what if though your, your son is holding the neighbor's cat? What's your answer going to be? Oh, that's good. Last, last sermon, I, I had a few people like, oh yeah, actually. <laughs> so just to be sure, okay, how about this? What if you turn around and he's holding his little sister by the neck? What's your answer going to be? Son, we're going to counseling tomorrow, okay? You need help, okay, right? But notice what this illustration shows. Whether or not it's moral to kill something depends entirely upon what it is you're killing. You cannot answer the question, can I kill this, until you first answer the question, what is it? And so having that in your mind, here is a key point that I want you to commit to memory. If you ask the question, what is the unborn? And through your investigation, you find out that the unborn is not a human being. Then no justification for abortion is necessary. However, if you ask the question, what is the unborn? And it turns out that the unborn is a human being, just like you and me. Well, then no justification for abortion is adequate. Right? Think about it for a moment. If the unborn is not a human being... Go ahead, have the abortion. What's the big deal? You don't have to give any argument for it. Have the abortion. If it's no different than having your tooth pulled or your appendix taken out or your tonsils removed, then you don't, you don't have to make any case for abortion. Just have it. It's no big deal. Do whatever you want with it. However, if it turns out that the unborn is a human being just like you and me, well, then there's no justification for killing an innocent human being like you and me. And that's why a lot of the most common defenses for abortion that you'll hear kind of on the street at work or at school or whatever, like these things, they completely sidestep the question, what is the unborn? Right? People say, well, women have a right to choose or women have a right to privacy or many poor women cannot afford another child or no child should be unwanted and so on and so forth. Notice, none of these defenses engage the question, what is the unborn? In fact, worse, they just assume that the unborn is not a human being, but no offer any, do not offer any defense for that position. So what if then for a moment we were to assume the opposite, that the unborn is a human being just like you and me? And we assumed it, okay? Let's just assume it. Well, that, that changes the calculus of this whole thing. Because if the unborn is not, a, if the, I'm sorry, if the unborn is a human being, well, should women have a right to choose? Well, sure, they should have a right to choose to do a whole host of things. But if the unborn is a human being like you and me, they shouldn't have the right to choose to kill their unborn innocent human being, right? Should women have a right to privacy? Well, sure, we all, we all should have a right to privacy. But if the unborn is a human being like you and me, then having a right to privacy doesn't give them the right to kill an innocent human being. Uh, are some children, should, should no child be unwanted? Of course not. We should, hopefully all children should be wanted. But the reality is, even if there are, child that are un, children that are unwanted, if the unborn is a human being like you and me, should a woman be able to kill that child just because a child is unwanted? No, of course not. So notice, when you assume the unborn is a human being, then none of these defenses for abortion become relevant. But now the person who defends abortion is going to say, but Alan, you're just assuming the unborn is a human being. I believe they're not. And I'll say, exactly right. And that's why the key question is, what is the unborn? 
Is the unborn a human being like you and me, or is it not? Answer that question, and that makes all of these defenses completely irrelevant. And that's why I say you don't want to follow these tangents because it'll get you off track and you'll end up talking about everything else other than abortion. The key question is, what is the unborn? So suppose then you've made that case and they're like, okay, yeah, you're right. That is the key question. The unborn, they'll say, is not a human being. You think it is? Prove it. Okay, well, that comes to our second task then. Here's how we can show that in the second task that the unborn is a human being just like you and me, from the moment of conception. Now, we can give, of course, biblical arguments, Bible verses, you know, talk about uh, a whole host of things about, you know, being made in God's image that we see in the Genesis account of creation that gives us value. We could talk about John the Baptist leaping in the womb of his mother when, Jesus com- or when, uh, when Mary comes by with Jesus. And, and a whole host of Bible verses that could support this position. But the reality is the vast majority of people who advocate in defense of abortion do not consider the Bible to be an authority. Well, guess what? We can still make a scientific defense from the science of embryology that the unborn is a human being. And since most people today in our culture think that science is a good arbiter of truth, then okay, why not use some of this particular reasoning? So I'm going to show you three things. Number one, I'm going to show you that the science of embryology literally proves that the unborn is a living being. It's alive. The science of embryology will also show that the unborn is a distinct individual who is different than the mother. And the third thing I'm going to show is that the science of embryology proves that the unborn is a human type of being, meaning it's not a potential human It's not some other kind of being, like a chicken being or a petunia being or whatever, but it's a human being. And so if we can show from the science of embryology that these three points are true, then I think we've made the case that the unborn is a human being. So let's take each one in turn. The first one is the claim that the unborn is alive. And this is perhaps the least controversial of the three. Um, When scientists want to figure out whether a thing they're looking at is alive or not, they ask, does it meet the biological criteria for life? Does it grow? Does it respond to stimuli? And does it metabolize nutrients and convert it to energy? Meaning, does it take in like nutrition and change that food into energy for it to survive? If it does those three things, a biologist would say, yeah, that thing's alive. Well, guess what? The unborn does all three things. Therefore, we can conclude that the unborn is a living being. It's alive. Again, not very controversial, but still we want to establish that as part of it. So the unborn is alive, but is it just merely a part of her mother's body, you know? Or is it a unique individual being? Well, again, the science of embryology speaks decisively on this question. There are a number of factors that are different about the mother than they are about the unborn that lead us to conclude that the unborn and the mother are different beings. For example, the unborn's fingerprints are different than that of the mother, right? And fingerprints in our society are one way to distinguish between one person and another, So this alone says, yes, absolutely. We're talking about two individual beings. They have different fingerprints. The unborn also has a different genetic fingerprint. The DNA of the unborn is different than all of the DNA in the mother's body. In fact, the DNA of the unborn is also different than the father's uh, father's DNA as well. And again, in forensic science and criminal justice, right, we know that if you got DNA evidence, this separates one person from another. 
So again, this is definitive evidence that the unborn is a unique individual being, not merely part of the mother's body. The unborn also has his own or her own heart, her own or his own blood type and blood circulatory system. Okay. Um, now, here's something that's rather interesting about this particular point. You may know that the unborn circulatory system and the circulatory system of the mother come very, very close together inside the placenta. But those two circulatory systems do not connect. They do not mix blood. Now, here's something that's rather interesting. If there is a problem inside the placenta when a woman is pregnant and the blood of the mother and the unborn were to mix or connect, here's what happens. The mother's body will mount an immune response against the unborn's body. Why? Because her body perceives the unborn's body as a foreign body, a different body, not part of her body. Notice, her immune system does not attack her eyes or her bone, right, or her tongue, because her immune system knows that's part of her body, but it recognizes the unborn is a foreign body. That's why it sends an immune response against it. So again, further scientific evidence, just from the unbiased nature of the physiology of the immune system, we know the unborn is a unique individual being. The unborn has its own brain, its own brainwave pattern, its own central nervous system. The unborn could be a boy, right? Women don't have male genitalia, right? So, but yet, if the, if the unborn is a boy, that would clearly be a way to distinguish between the mother and the unborn. Furthermore, we know that the unborn can be conceived outside of the mother's body, right? With in vitro fertilization, you can take a sperm and an egg, put them together in a Petri dish, have them grow for a time outside and then later on at a later time implant them inside the woman's uterus or her womb. Which is further evidence that this thing is a unique individual being different than that of the mother's body. And actually through surrogacy today, you can have potentially a ethnically Chinese child growing inside an ethnically Swedish mother. Right? I mean, just think visually, like we're talking, I mean, you, you can just kind of imagine this. We're, we're talking about two different beings, right? Two different individuals. So again, notice now we have good evidence to think that the unborn is a unique individual being merely from the science of embryology. But now the question becomes, well, what kind of being is this living, distinct being? Is it an elephant being? Is it a dolphin being? Is it a human being? Is it a dog being? What kind of being is it? Now, there's two ways to answer this question. The first would be to simply look at the genetic signature of the unborn. In other words, if you were to take a sample of the unborn's DNA and test it, what you discover is that the unborn being is a human type of being. Not a dog being, not an elephant being, not a potential human, but an actual human. Right? Now, most of us don't have access to such a test, right? Like, you can't go to, you know, Walmart and buy, you know, two-for-one, you know, tests like this, or, or Costco, for that matter, buy 50 tests like that, right? Uh, you just can't do that. So how would you and I show that the unborn is a human type of being? Well, we can simply look to what's called the principle or the law of biogenesis. Now, this is a fancy term for an idea that you all already understand. It's something that Louis Pasteur helped develop back in the 19th century. And this principle says this, living things reproduce after their own kind. 
In other words, if you have two dogs that come together and mate, they're going to produce another what? Dog. Dog. That's right. You get two giraffes that come together and mate, they're going to produce another what? Giraffe. That's right. So when my wife and I were pregnant, we wondered, are we going to have a boy or a girl? But we didn't wonder whether we're going to have a human or not. Okay, right? When our second child was born and she turned out also to be a human, we weren't like, wow, two humans in a row. What are the chances? Like, we were not surprised by this, right? Because my wife's human, I'm human, so, you know. So notice, this provides you a very practical test. If you want to know whether the unborn, what kind of being the unborn is, all you got to do is ask a simple question. What are its parents? And if the parents are human then the unborn will also be human 100% of the time. Science knows no possible way where two humans can come together and mate and produce something that is not human, but then later becomes one. This is a scientific impossibility. So notice then, we have shown scientifically from the science of embryology, the unborn is alive, it's distinct, And it's a human type of being. And this is why we can conclude with confidence that the unborn is a human being just like you and me from the moment of conception. Because all these three things are true of the unborn at the moment sperm and egg meet together. Now I want to show you a quick video of this content being used in action. Many years ago, uh, Kathy Ireland, who used to be a model and, and an actress, she now, I think she's involved in some sort of businesses or whatever, but she became a pro-life Christian and she wrote a book called Powerful Inspirations. And so she was invited on the TV show called Hannity and Combs, which is like a conservative liberal sort of talk show on Fox News where you have Sean Hannity, who's a conservative guy, and Alan Combs, who's a liberal guy. He, he, by the way, Alan Combs has since passed away, so I think the show doesn't exist anymore, but I think Sean Hannity might still have a TV show on his own. But this is the time when Alan Combs was alive. So they would debate various issues from a conservative and liberal perspective. So she comes on the show, and uh, before she went on the show, though, she came to us at Stand to Reason, and we were able to train her in exactly the same arguments that I just presented to you. And I want you to see how she used this content that I just taught you in a real-life situation on national television. Let's take a look to see how she does. now, Kathy Ireland, author of the new book, Powerful Inspirations, Eight Lessons That'll Change Your Life. Kathy, welcome to Hannity Combs. What do you think about doing a political show like this? Oh, I think it's great. I love you guys. Thank you for having me. Do you watch our show? It's great. I do. Gee, I wonder which side you agree with. Now, I'm guessing you're... You're pretty conservative, but you were telling me off the air you have a very strong liberal position. You know, I, I don't like labels. They cause us to, di- to dismiss one another, assuming we know all there is to know. I'm conservative on some issues, and I'm liberal on liberal? some issues. Where are you liberal? I'm very liberal when it comes to protecting the human rights of the unborn. All right, now, you, see, I'm very yeah, conservative. Very well said. I'm, I'm very you, conservative, Kathy, and I feel the government has no place in having anything to say about what women do with their bodies concerning that. So it, I've got it, the conservative is position body? on that. Is it her I, I didn't want yes. to be pro-choice. But when you ask powerful questions, you get powerful answers. That's one of the chapters in the book, yep, Powerful yep. Answers. Right. And the evidence I see tells me that the unborn is a human being. If you can show me any evidence that the unborn is not yes, a but human when, being... When is it become, we're not going to settle this here tonight, I don't think. But, oh, we, you know, I mean, is it a conception? Is that when it happens? At the moment yes. of conception. At the moment uh, of a conception, a new life comes into being with not, the complete genetic blueprints. The fingerprint is determined 
determined, the blood type is determined, the sex is determined. So you what kind of life going, is it? You're According to the law of biogenesis. You deny women the right to then choose I what to do with that I will always fight point. for women's rights. I have been an, an activist in women's rights. She doesn't have the right to choose to what to do with her body. It's not her body. The baby this woman is carrying could very well have a different blood type than her. If it's a male child, the baby has a well, penis. The woman doesn't have a penis, so it's not a part of her body, but it I, resides I within her body. This issue. We're not going to, people are not going to come to agreement on this all of a sudden on Check this very mate. divisive issue. And I'm sad that it's However, let me ask issue. you. <laughs> so that, go, that goes on for a little while. But as you see, she's just using the content that she learned in a real situation, right? A national television show. Uh, this is not stuff that's just sort of like in theory. It's practical stuff that we use, that I use on the street, if you will, when I'm engaged in debates or conversations or whatever it might be. And the reality is, is that the science of embryology is not really disputed based on what I've said so far. For example, standard embryology textbooks that are used in universities even acknowledge the truths that I've so far spoken. Essentials of Embryology and Birth Defects, again, standard embryology textbook, says this. The zygote, which is when a sperm and egg first meet, that first stage, formed by the union of an oocyte, which means egg, between an oocyte and a sperm is the beginning of a new human being. Notice it affirms that humans begin when sperm and egg meet. Here's another uh, embryology textbook, Human Embryology and Teratology. It says the same thing. A new genetically distinct human organism is formed when the chromosomes of the male and female pronuclei blend in the oocyte, in the egg. All right? Nobody disagrees with this. Uh, David Boonin, who is a defender of abortion, one of the most sophisticated philosophers in America today who defends abortion choice, in his book, uh, A Defense of Abortion, he agrees with what I've said so far. A human fetus, he says, after all, is simply a human being at a very early stage of his or her development. And Peter Singer, who's an Australian bioethicist, this guy not only defends abortion, but he thinks it's morally permissible to kill born children for up to a month or a month and a half after they're born if they have some sort of developmental handicap and it brings more happiness to the parents to kill their child, get pregnant again, and have another child that is not developmentally handicapped. He says it is morally permissible to kill even born children in that situation. And this guy, by the way, teaches at, at Princeton University. Like, he's not some sort of no-name person, right? But despite his radical view about infanticide and abortion, of course, he still agrees with what I've said. There's no doubt, he says, that from the first moments of his existence, an embryo conceived from human sperm and eggs is a human being. Do you see what I'm saying? No, there, anyone who denies this is simply, you can call him a science denier. I don't know, what do you want to call him? But it's just not true. Let me show you then a video that will allow you to confirm with your eyes what your mind has already learned, and that is the unborn is a human being. Now, this is a video, uh, it, some people have, I'm sure you've seen on ultrasound. Ultrasounds are typically scratchy, sort of black and white videos or, or pictures of the outline of a child. But this is where they take a camera and a little teeny flashlight and insert it inside the mother and even inside the amniotic sac to get a visualization of what the unborn looks like in utero. It's amazing, okay? And this is what an unborn human being looks like at just nine weeks old. Let's take a look.
amazing that you can see literally a kid in utero just floating around, you know, umbilical cord still attached, right? Almost looks like he's putting his hand against the flashlight. It's like, hey, you know, it's been dark here for like nine weeks. Like, stop turning, you know, that thing on my face, right? But again, we see that in just at nine weeks, still technically at the embryo uh, level, we still have what looks like to be a human being that we can all recognize. And so I believe the second task then would be shown to be true, that the unborn is a human being, all right? So we've shown there's only one question to resolve, what is the unborn? We've shown that the unborn is a human being, and now the third and final task would be to show that all human beings are valuable. Now you might ask, why is that necessary? Well, it's partly because of the response to our evidence, okay? So this is the, this is the moral logic of the pro-life position, we say, look, premise one, it's wrong to kill innocent human beings. Premise two, we'd say abortion kills an innocent human being. So this is what we call a valid deductive argument. If premise one and premise two are true, then the conclusion that abortion is wrong logically follows by necessity. Okay? Now, would most people agree with premise one? Of course. Most people say, yeah, it's wrong to kill innocent human beings. No. If they don't agree with that, they don't need an argument. They need a jail cell, okay? <laughs> that's creepy if somebody thinks that that's not true. So most people will accept premise one. It's premise two that they might disagree with. But notice what we've just shown, that the unborn is a human being. And since abortion kills whatever the unborn is, therefore abortion kills an innocent human being. So we've shown this to be true through the science of embryology. Therefore, this conclusion follows and is true. Now, when I debated a feminist and a women's studies professor over the subject of abortion many years ago, this is the way she responded, which is, by the way, typical of the way most philosophers or people who argue for abortion, who are more sophisticated than the average person, will argue. Here's what they did. They said, look, it's not wrong to kill innocent human beings. It's wrong to kill innocent human persons. And yeah, abortion might kill an innocent human being, but it doesn't kill a person, so therefore abortion is not wrong. Now, what they're basically saying is, yeah, the unborn, yeah, it might be a human being, I see where your evidence is going, but it's not a person. Now, what question pops into your mind when you hear that? Yeah, what's the difference, right? What's the difference between a human being and a human person? Okay? Now, by the way, they must have an answer to that question. Because they've just made the incredible claim that there exists a group of people, a group of human beings that can be killed with impunity simply because they're not persons. Oh, really? Well, who are those human beings that we can kill because they're not persons? Maybe that'd be a new sport or a new game show, right? Like go out and hunt the humans that aren't persons, right? Now, they answer by saying a whole bunch of different qualities or characteristics that they believe separate a human being from a human person. Say, you know, human persons can think about morality or have hopes and dreams or are, you know, not dependent upon their mothers for survival. Human beings are dependent upon their mothers or they can't think for themselves or they're not aware of moral categories. They don't have hopes and dreams and so on and so forth. Okay? Now, all of the characteristics or qualities that a person might offer to suggest the difference between a human being and a born human person can be put into one of these four categories. Size or physical appearance, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency. 
And you can remember those four categories with the acronym SLED. In fact, we call this the SLED test. It's like a tactic that we use to help people remember the four ways that the unborn is different than a born person. But as I'm about to show you, none of these four categories is relevant. None of these four categories makes a distinction between a human being and a human person. None of these four categories justifies killing a human being who's not born as opposed to a person who is. So let's take a look at the four categories. Okay, let's take the first one. S in SLED stands for size. Yes, it's true that the unborn is smaller than a born human being. But why is size relevant to your status as a person? Many years ago, the Guinness Book of World Records brought together the tallest man in the world and the shortest man in the world. Sultan Kosin's eight feet, three inches tall, and Chandra's only one foot, 9.5 inches, right? It's like a little, little, you know, a football. You got to like, throw the kid, right? I mean, he's not a kid, he's an adult. But it's amazing how small and how different they are. But would we say that Chandra is less valuable or not a person because he's smaller than Sultan? Of course not, because size is irrelevant when it comes to your status as a person. And the unborn just happens to be smaller than Chandra. And so since we don't disqualify people uh, based on their size, we can't disqualify the unborn based on his or her size simply because he's smaller. Because we don't make those distinctions with born people, why would we make them with someone who's unborn? Because size is irrelevant when it comes to your status as a person. Now, there's also the L in SLED, which stands for level of development. Yes, it's true. The unborn is less developed than a born human being. But again, why does that matter? Why does being less developed somehow disqualify you from being a person? Consider six or seven-year-old girls. Their reproductive organs, their, their reproductive system hasn't even fully developed. They can't even get pregnant. Would we say that they are less of a person than, say, a 15-year-old girl who could get pregnant? No, of course not, because your level of development is irrelevant to your status as a person. You're still no less valuable simply because your reproductive system hasn't fully developed. And in the same way, the unborn just happens to be less developed than a six-year-old girl, or even a one-year-old, obviously, right? And so the unborn is just different in that same degree, but not in any kind of other kind, right? So this is why we say the unborn can't be less valuable or disqualified as a person just because they're less developed than, say, a girl who's six. Now, the E in SLED stands for environment. Yes, it's true. The unborn is in a different environment or a different location than a born human being. But where you are has no bearing on who you are. Right? When you change location, does that affect your status as a person? If you fly in space or swim underwater with scuba gear, you've changed your environment. You've changed your location. Are you less of a person? Absolutely not. So how could a seven-inch journey down the birth canal magically transform you from a non-valuable human being into a valuable person? Right? I mean, nothing has changed except seven inches of location. Because environment or location is irrelevant when it comes to your status as a person. And finally, the D in the slide test stands for degree of dependency. Yes, again, it's true. The unborn is more dependent upon its mother for its survival. But again, why is being dependent upon somebody else somehow disqualify you from being valuable? Right? I mean, uh, there's a lot of elderly people who are dependent upon their grown children today for care. 
right? Does that, do we disqualify them as being valuable persons? No. What if you're at a pool party, you're the last person to go inside to have some nice, you know, deep dish pizza or whatever, and uh, you see a one-year-old fall into the deep end of a swimming pool. Now, their entire life is now dependent upon you for their survival. Can you say, well, I'm sorry, young man, but the reality is, because you're dependent upon me, you don't qualify as a person. You're not a valuable human being. That's ridiculous, right? Because whether you're dependent upon somebody else is irrelevant when it comes to your status as a person. And this is why the four categories, size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency, yes, those are legitimate differences between a born, sorry, born human being and an unborn human being, but none of them are relevant differences. None of them are justification to disqualify the unborn and not disqualify a born person, right? This is why I think that abortion really is tantamount to a form of unjust discrimination, because there are a whole host of examples throughout human history where we have taken a class of human beings and we've disqualified them from being valuable based on some arbitrary characteristic. Like take, for example, our own country in the United States, right? Many years ago, African Americans were discriminated against, right? Notice they were a class of human beings, but they were disqualified from being valuable human beings based on an arbitrary characteristic, what characteristic? Their skin color. Why? So they can be kidnapped and be uh, forced into slavery. Uh, many years ago, in, uh, during World War II, there was discrimination against Jews. Notice they were also a class of human beings, but they were disqualified from being valuable human beings based on an arbitrary characteristic. What characteristic? Their ethnicity. Why? So they could be experimented on and eventually exterminated. And today, unborn children are being discriminated against in exactly the same way. Notice, they are also a class of human beings. Notice, nobody denies they're not human. But they are being also disqualified from being valuable based on an arbitrary characteristic. What characteristic? They're too small, in the wrong location, uh, not developed enough, or too dependent upon their mothers for survival. So the same type of discrimination is occurring in all of these, where we accept them as human, but disqualify them as being valuable human. However, the pro-life view, our view, is a very inclusive view. And I use that term because that's the buzzword of our day, right? Nobody in our culture today wants to be not inclusive. Well, guess what? The pro-life view is the inclusive view. Our view says that no human being, regardless of size, level of development, uh, race, gender, or place of residence, should ever be excluded from the human community. Our view of humanity is inclusive and wide open to all, especially to those who are small, vulnerable, and defenseless. Right? Notice, it's our view that's inclusive. People who support abortion choice are the ones who are excluding some human beings. They are not including the diversity of humanity. But it's the pro-life view that is inclusive, wide open to everybody else. And so the final point I want to make then, just to close with this thought, is, well, then what is our duty given this reality? Well, I believe Jesus told us, and I'm sure you all believe as well, that Jesus told us to love our neighbors, right? Now you might ask, well, is the unborn our neighbor? 
Well, if the unborn is a human being, then the answer is yes, the unborn is a, is a part of our, is our neighbor. And we've just shown that the unborn is a human being, therefore the unborn is our neighbor. So what does it mean to love our unborn neighbor? Well, love, biblically understood, is more than a feeling. You know, it's like the song, More Than a Feeling, the 80s song. I grew up in the 80s. Uh, right? It's an action. It's something that we do. And Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. And then he shared with his audience the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, if you know the parable, as you probably recall, a man is left for dead after he's beaten up on the side of the road. And then a priest and a Levite walk by on the other side. And Jesus castigated the priest and Levite, not because they didn't feel pity or compassion, but because they did nothing to show compassion. The Samaritan comes along, who, by the way, Samaritans were half Jewish and half Assyrian, my people, woohoo! <laughs> okay. so, so the Samaritan comes along, he has compassion, but also does something to show compassion, right? He takes him, cares for him, takes him to a, a hotel and whatever, and, and provides him with the care he needs. And Jesus then says, go and do the same. You see, we can't just be pro-life in our attitude and just give lip service to the idea. We want to be pro-life also in our behavior. We got to do something to stop the killing, and this gives us an opportunity to be a champion for life, right? Because champions do more than just what feels good. They go above and beyond and do what the rest will not do. I'm thinking of a champion like Oscar Schindler. Many of you maybe have seen the movie Schindler's List. It's a remarkable movie. I encourage you to see it if you haven't had a chance. But it talks about this man, Oscar Schindler, who during World War II, he bought Jews off of the death camp list and employed him in his own factory in order to save them from being exterminated. And at the end of the movie, there's a remarkable scene where Oscar Schindler is now standing around 1,100 other men, women, and children, Jews, who he'd saved. And they're, of course, showing their appreciation and thanks to Oscar Schindler for risking his life. But now Oscar Schindler is in jeopardy. Right? He's, in, he's in trouble. He's got to be on the run. So he's standing there just about to get into his car and ride off, and they're just expressing their thanks. And as Oscar Schindler is looking into their eyes, he glances over and he notices his car. And he says, oh my gosh, says, that car. He goes, I could have sold that car and used the money to save 10 more Jews. Oh, I should have done that. I, I can't believe I didn't do more than what I've done. And they're like, no, no, Oscar Schindler, you've done so much. Look at the people around you that you've saved. Oscar Schindler then looks down at his coat and he pulls off a pin that's gold. He says, this pin is gold. He goes, I could have sold this pin because it's gold and with the money saved two more Jews or no, no, maybe one more Jew, but I didn't. And so he falls down weeping saying, I could have done more. I could have done more, but I didn't do enough. Brothers and sisters, are we taking our Holocaust as seriously as Oscar Schindler took his? Are we loving our unborn neighbor the way Jesus has commanded us to? Because remember, you were once an unborn human being. And killing you in the womb would not have killed a potential you or someone like you. It would have killed you. So please join me in using these basic tools of persuasion to change minds on abortion. To make abortion unthinkable in your sphere of influence. Because it could be the difference between life or death for a fellow human being. 
Now, before I close in prayer, I just want to turn your attention to one thing, and that's the card that was passed out to you. If you can all pull this out for just a moment, I want to tell you what this is. If you don't have one, there might be some in the back you can grab later on. But for those of you who have it, I want you to pull it out, and I want you to notice it's perforated. And I want you to tear apart the two pieces. You'll look at the green card, and you'll see on one side it says the sled test. This is a summary of that last test that I just talked about, right? Size, level, development, environment, degree, dependency. This is a reminder for you, something that you can keep in your purse, in your wallet, in your back pocket, in your, your man bag, whatever guys carry these days, you know, merce, okay? Put in your merce, you know? As a reminder of the four ways the unborn differs from a born person, none of which are relevant, right? So this is for you to keep. Now, the white card is for me, and every two months, we mail out a training article on some apologetics-related subject. So, for example, we cover stuff like pro-life issues, you know, stem cell research and cloning and making sense of what those are. Sometimes we talk about the, the evidence that we have that Jesus rose bodily from the grave. Sometimes we talk about how do you uh, engage uh, in a relationship with your friend or family member who identifies himself as transgender? How do you do it in a loving, compassionate way without compromising? your biblical convictions. So these are the hard-hitting subjects that we try to address. If you're interested in getting that training, all you got to do is tell us where you live. Fill us out and then put this uh, outside in the foyer. I have a small book table. Just put this on the book table and we'll get you signed up for that free training. But wait, there's more. <laughs> if you turn it in, there will be one of these sitting on the book table. Feel free to pick one up as a free gift to you. This is a laminated copy of a, um, it's called Jesus the Only Way. It is a, it's nine pieces of evidence or nine lines of reasoning from scripture why we know Jesus is the only way to salvation. Because some people today, even script, Christians sometimes, will argue that he's not the only way. There's other paths to God, you know, Muhammad or whatever, you know. So this argues that Jesus is the only way. This is free for you. If you fill this out, turn it in, pick up one of these, and that'll be your free gift to us, or to you today. Let me close in prayer, and then we'll have Mickey come up and uh, lead us in communion. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that we have a chance to, to get together as brothers and sisters in Christ and to talk about some of these subjects that we rarely get to talk about in church. But Lord, it's so critical that we do because you have made us in your image. You've made us valuable. You've made us intrinsically important. And because of that, we would never want to distinguish human life. And Lord, we recognize that in a crowd this size, Lord, there may be people who have even been involved in the sin of abortion. But this is not a sin that is unpardonable, Lord. You have the grace. You give the grace even for those of us who have fallen short in that area. So may that never be a barrier to coming to faith in you, Lord. But also, Lord, for those of us who have an opportunity to use this material, Lord, may we use it to persuasively yet graciously engage people who differ than us on it so that we can be agents of change to be salt and light in this culture. But may we do it, Lord, in a way that brings honor and glory to your name, being gracious with the Son, with uh, the name of Jesus Christ that goes before us, Lord. Thank you for that opportunity. Amen. Can we thank Alan today? The ushers are going to come forward now, and we're going to be receiving communion as they distribute this. Um, Alan has given us so much today to process, equipping us to deal with such a difficult and challenging issue. But it's also a very personal issue. 
And as you could tell in his final prayer, that's not lost on today. We realize that it's important that we have arguments and that we can bring truth to situations. But we also realize that we are people that each have a journey. And I don't know what your background is. I don't know what your history's been. But this is an issue that plagues all of us, men and women, because we all participate in the choices we've made. And as fallen people, we have struggled on these kind of issues. And I don't know if you caught this, but this hit me today when he was speaking in the first service, that we're talking about an issue today that deals with an innocent, defenseless human being and the choice as a fallen people that we have made in many cases to miss that or even to value that and take action against that. And yet, when God saw that and he saw the kind of things that could be in our heart, this and other issues, other sins that we all struggle with, his response to that for all of us was to send his innocent son who put up no defense as those around him took him away and killed him. And he did that. What, what, a, what a, an amazing irony. And that response was so that as he hung on that cross and asked his father to place on him our sins, he could give us a path to freedom beyond these kind of choices that we've made. I think you might hear what I'm saying here. If you are a person who has never come to grasp with this issue, I hope today has spoken to you, but if you're a person who has lived this very personally, whether you're a woman who has made this choice before, whether you're a man who has supported that choice before, do you realize that God has a path of hope for you? That today's message is a, is a way forward, and including for those you might know who have walked that path. God's grace is available. There's two things I hope you take away from today as we receive communion, and then we're going to pray and we're going to close out today. The first one is this. Life is sacred to God. Human beings are sacred to God. They are persons of infinite value, each worth more than this whole world put together. And he takes it very serious when we devalue that. And he will not overlook that. But the second thing is this, that if we realize that, and if we come to him in a genuine broken spirit, in a genuine place of humility, and we turn from that and turn to him, then no matter what our past is, no matter what choices we've made, he offers forgiveness and mercy and grace because of what he did on that cross in giving his life. That is what we celebrate today in this moment. And that is what brings us hope at even such a difficult and challenging issue. I do pray that we become a voice individually in this world. And there are many ways we can do this, but the most important way, as Alan said, is changing minds and hearts. And of course, that begins with us. And so Jesus sat with his followers many years ago, and on that final night, right before he was betrayed to his death, he took bread. He gave it to them, and he said, Take all of you and eat this. This is my body. It's going to be broken tonight for you so that I can make you whole beyond 
your sin. Let's take this together. And then he took the cup and he again had given thanks and he told his disciples, take this, all of you, and drink from this because this is my blood. This is the blood I'm going to shed so that rather than you being bound by the things that have led you away from God, instead you can be redeemed. You can be brought near to him again. And that is what he offers to each and every one of us. Let's take the cup together. Lord, we thank you for this sacrifice. We thank you that no matter our past, we can turn to you anew today. Receive your grace, your mercy, and forgiveness. And we can say today, Lord, we will line with you, with what you say concerning who we are, each and every one of us that you have created and put here. You have given each and every one of us a precious gift, and that is to carry you, Lord, in our lives. And so, God, we pray that we would be representatives of you. For those today that may, maybe have taken a first step to you, we pray, God, that uh, you would encourage them in their path as they continue in their journey with you, Jesus. Help us as we go forward in this world, God, to be your voice, to be your arms and hands. Help us to carry your grace, mercy, forgiveness, and truth in this world. In Jesus' name.